0: Welcome to the In the Oil Patch radio show Broadcasting from the SR Trident Studio SR Trident, where safety is a culture, not just a word In the Oil Patch radio show with Kim Bilotto Is where you will hear the latest in the oil, gas and energy industry From a wide variety of industry experts, elected officials and more Right here on In the Oil Patch radio show and welcome to In
1: the Old Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Otto, and today we have a great show lined up for you. We'll be joined by JC Morris, who is with Alarian. But first, I'd like to tell you about our latest issue of Shell Magazine, in which we featured Nick Dulles, who is the CEO of CNX Resources now they are a new refining company that's located in the Marcellus shell which is near pittsburgh so we're pretty excited about being able to feature them and talking about what's happening in the pittsburgh area it's an article and an issue that you don't want to miss plus there's a whole lot of other straight stories in there especially if you want to know more about oil gas and energy for more information please go to shale s-h-a-l-e-m-a-g.com And I'd like to also invite you to join me at our State of Energy in Houston, Texas. It is set for April 21st. It is a luncheon. Our keynote speaker will be the commissioner of the Texas Railroad Commission, Wayne Christian, along with a great set of panelists. We will be joined by the CEO of Howard Energy, Mike Howard, also the CEO of the Port of Corpus Christi, Sean Strawbridge, and the vice president of Argus Media Group, Bruce Fullenwire. It's a luncheon that you do not want to miss. For more information and to purchase tickets or to sponsor the event, please go to shellmag.com and click on the banner ad, purchase your ticket. This will be a sold out event. I look forward to seeing you there. And now it's time to welcome on my co-host and editor of Shell Magazine, David Blackman. David, welcome to this week's show.
2: Hey, it's another beautiful day in the oil patch.
1: I love when you say that because we are really having some phenomenal (laughs) weather. (laughs) I'm yeah. all over the state of Texas, and it's just beautiful no matter where I go. It, it really see. has
2: been, yeah.
1: It, it really has been a nice. You know, it's 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 perfect. It's Easter time, and you see all of the spring bonnets coming out. It's it's a, just such a beautiful time. David, let's talk about oil prices, our favorite topic, of course. <laughs> you know, it's it, it's like a, a roller coaster, up and down yeah. and all around the bend. Um, they fell this week after Joe Biden announced the big new withdrawal. That's coming out of the strategic petroleum reserves. First, what factors are influencing oil prices this week? And second, the Biden withdrawal from SPR, the strategic petroleum reserves. I'm going to ask you if that's a good idea, but I I mean, I want our listeners to understand the strategic petroleum reserve is the mission is what and why is this a good or bad idea? Go ahead.
2: Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that. Let's start with that. Because, I mean, the SPR was created in 1973 by an act of a Democratic-dominated Congress. Uh, It was signed into law by Richard Nixon, a Republican president. It was a bipartisan idea that came about in the wake of the first Arab oil embargo that, you know, prices spiked, gas prices spiked, and oil prices spiked because uh, Saudi Arabia and other countries... Uh, withheld oil exports to our country and uh, the, the product became scarce. And so Congress responded to that by saying, look, it, in, a, in a national emergency like that, in wartime or when when other countries are withholding oil from us, we need uh, a bunch of oil in the ground in these salt domes, salt caverns uh, along the Texas Gulf Coast and Louisiana Gulf Coast. Uh, and, and And that we can tap. In in order to ensure our military, uh, you know, has enough gasoline <laughs> to run the jets and the and the tanks and everything,
1: and, and so they a created. The reason it. why we won World War II was because we had more sure. energy than everybody else. We won else. the
2: Battle of the Bulge, uh, the the key battle, the crucial battle, Patton's battle with with Germany uh, in 1944 because uh, I, we were able to maintain our supply lines for gasoline, yeah. and Hitler wasn't. And, and that's why uh, the good guys won World War II, and it's why we're not all speaking German today. Um, and, and people forget about that, how crud- critical it really is. And so it's a matter of national security. And, and Biden's talking about now uh, diminishing that reserve by 40 percent of what he inherited because, well, gasoline prices are over four dollars at the pump. And I know that's an, an inconvenience. It's it's really hard on people's pocketbooks, but folks, this is not a national emergency. It's a political inconvenience for Joe Biden and the Democratic Party six months before an election. But
1: That's David, why he's doing this. But David, this is what they they created this mess. They designed this mess. This is this is their design. Sure. And now they're releasing and making us less. <laughs> secure right. by thinking that releasing that is somehow or another going to help at the pump. Is it going to help the consumer at the pump, the, the listener right now? How is that releasing? Oh. How is that going to help them? No, I mean,
2: it won't help the consumer. I mean, it, it has temporarily in the very short term uh, had an effect of moderating oil prices, but the market is still undersupplied by two or three million barrels a day. And and oil prices are going to continue to go up because uh, of government policies, not just in the United States, but by liberal governments around the world that have the impact of diminishing production of oil. And so the market is undersupplied. There's more demand than there is supply for oil and prices are going to continue to go up later this year. And I wanna remind everyone, Two that i forgot a minute ago 1973 was joe biden's first year in the united states senate joe biden was in the senate that created the strategic petroleum reserve and but he has know, forgotten, he's forgotten, forgotten
1: about that he's already yeah. he, you know because he doesn't know where he is but you know the thing is that that our listeners need to remember is that this strategic releasing of this, all he ha- all he has to do, his administration is release the four thousand permits that he's sitting on. All he has to do is yeah, tear up that, that a good start. order for the Keystone Pipeline and put the, All yeah. he all he has to do is get out of the way.
3: Get out of get the out way. Of the that way would be a good thing.
1: Policies. You and your party, and we wouldn't need to be tapping into something and making us a lot less energy independent. Uh, And it is a matter of national security, so I am a little upset about this today. I'm very upset about it. (laughs) Question, though. Now the Democrat Party is having two hearings bringing the oil executives in to basically, you know, tar and feather them on hearings (laughs) that are going nowhere. What is that all about? And why is it ludicrous for them to be doing this? Well, you know...
2: it, it's it's so ridiculous. It's like Dan Knox told us last week from IPAA. The Democrats have a playbook that they mm-hmm. break out every time gasoline prices go up. And, you know, the first thing they do basically is, is call the oil CEOs from the big oil companies in for a hearing where they can, you know, slander them and Accuse their companies of, of collusion and price fixing and price gouging and intentionally raising the price of oil on a global market that they do not control. Uh, it's heard, all They don't even understand
1: political. it. They, the, they, these elected officials don't even understand how. Open up the spigot. You can't right. just do. So it's a matter of their, their ignorance or lack of understanding, and then their playbook that pull it out.
2: <laughs> right. It, it Wonder- really is. You create a problem, and then you try to blame others for creating the problem you created. That's what those earrings are about.
1: That's correct. So, David, let's switch gears. Uh, natural gas prices in the U.S. were up, breaking through $6 per MCF barrier for the first time in over a decade. My question is, why is this happening in a month where normally you'll see natural gas prices dropping? Because as we're starting to approach uh, warmer weather and summer, uh, why is this happening?
2: And, And so, yes, I mean, gas prices do generally start dropping this time of year as we get out of the cold weather, you know, and people stop having to run their home heaters and use so much natural gas. But what's happening here is the market now, traders on the market are starting to recognize that uh, the Biden administration is continuing to refuse. You talked about issuing permits a minute ago. They're, they're now, they refuse to issue permits to approve new pipelines. And we, we need to build some new pipelines to move the natural gas to market and to all the public utilities that use natural gas, and to all the LNG facilities that export natural gas. And, and the Biden administration's refusal to permit those pipelines and allow them to be built out is now having a big impact on, on prices. Uh, and so, you know, what, what that does is what we end up happening when you don't have the necessary infrastructure to move the gas to the markets where it needs to be consumed is you create constraints on the production of natural gas. We have 500 years of supply of natural gas in this country, just in Texas, really under the ground in Texas. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but if you can't get it to market, it doesn't matter that it's there. Right. Right, and so right. all these constraints now that are coming on the midstream portion of the market are starting to impact prices that we pay on our utility bills. And that's what's happening. And, and it's something that very few people want to talk about. And that's too bad.
1: Well, we want to talk about it because we'll
2: talk about <laughs> it. Yes. <laughs> we believe,
1: you know, what we believe is we need to start, really looking at which party is causing this huge inconvenience affecting our pocketbooks and a quality of our life and it's only one party David it's the democrat
2: Party. Uh, yeah and you know it's kim and, and it's not like and, and it is the democratic party but but it's not all of them i mean look we've, we've got henry Cuellar down there in south texas who is the one democratic member of, of the house of representative who stands up for this industry. Time after time after time. And what does the Democratic Party do to him? They have the FBI raid his home a month before primary.
1: Because because he's got a far left opponent challenging him. That's right. Right, right, right. right. And you know what? I'm sorry, but that is also their party. That's how they operate. And so if that's how you operate with absolutely zero honor, then I'm sorry, Henry Cuellar, you were great, but maybe you should have switched parties because... This party does not really stand for energy independence. And I want to do a show soon, David, on why this is happening and why the green, because I don't want anybody to think that's our listeners, that we are anti-climate. Uh, we don't uh, We don't support, uh, you know, a healthy climate. Uh, we, we do care about the planet. We're not anti-climate. Uh, green and and being more energy efficient no we're
2: anti-stupidity we're anti-bad energy policy
1: it's bad energy policies that's affecting the very way of life that we have and so you know we need to have another show on this i do encourage our (laughs) listeners to follow us and like us on our linkedin and on our facebook so that way they know and keep up with our shows well david on our next segment, we will be joined by Stacey Morris, who is with Alarion. And you're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. And We'll be right back. And David, now it is time for us to welcome on our guest, Stacy Morris, the Director of Research at Alarion. Stacey, welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Thanks so much, Kim. I appreciate you having me. Well, we're excited because this is the first time you're visiting us on the show. So I wanted to give our listeners an opportunity. Tell us a little bit about Allurian and how you came to be the director of research for the company. Sure.
3: So Allurian has a long history of indexing, um, particularly in the midstream and MLP space that has subsequently expanded into other sectors as well. Um, but I joined Alarion back in October of 2017, my background has really been in finance and oil and gas. Um, I started my career on the sell side, uh, covering energy companies at Raymond James in Houston, um, and then moved on to do investor relations for an oil refiner. Um, so I spent a lot of time looking at oil and gas markets and you know, energy stocks, and um, you know, I'm excited to you know, join the conversation with you today. Excellent.
1: Well, let's get started because we have a lot to discuss pertaining to what's happening uh, with oil prices uh, on the global scale as well as uh, here at home. So the situation with global oil prices has been slightly volatile in the last couple of days um, and actually weeks. Following the ban from Russian crude imports implemented by the U.S. and U.K., both sides are continuing to ratchet up the sanctions – my question for you is, what do you think we'll continue to see here in the next coming days and weeks as more pressure is put on Russia? And how does he respond?
3: Yeah, so I think we'll continue to see a lot of volatility in this space. I mean, we've seen um, pretty wild swings um, over the last you know, couple of days, even in just the last you know, two weeks or so. Um, You know, as we're recording this, oil WTI is trading around $97 a barrel, um, but that's down pretty significantly from, you know, $120 uh, (laughs) type prices that we saw. These are wild swings.
2: That's really crazy. Yes.
3: Yes. So trying to predict prices over the next few days is is probably a little bit of a full errand. but I do think we'll continue to see you know, volatility, um, and a lot depends on kind of how, you know, things unfold from here with your know, demand and China being in focus with, you know, more lockdowns around COVID-19, you know, whether we see more of a producer response, particularly from UAE and Saudi Arabia, which actually have their capacity. Um, and, you know, what we see with Russia and Ukraine and whether, you know, the situation there changes at all. Um, you know, hopefully it changes for the better soon. Um, but, you know, it, it's kind of anybody's guess at this point.
2: Um, so, how about tell us how this affects what your company does? You know, I mean, with all this volatility and, and uncertainty in the marketplace, that has to have a pretty major impact on investment decisions in, in the oil and gas industry and really every other industry, correct?
3: Sure, absolutely. So. You, licenses is its indexes to product partners who then, you know, use the indexes to do exchange traded funds, ETFs, or exchange traded notes, ETNs. Um, So there are a number of products that track our different indexes. Um, And so, you know, people are looking at those products, I think, a little more closely now in general. Um, We've seen, you know, people pay a lot more attention to energy than they have over the last several years, just because when oil hits $100 per barrel, um, energy finally reaching about 4% of the S&P 500 after being, you know, about 2.7% at the end of December of 2021, Um, you know, those sorts of things cause people to look at the space more. Inflation is playing into that too. Um, So it's not just necessarily what's gone on with Russia and Ukraine, um, but certainly higher oil prices and the moves that we've seen in energy equities. I think, of making generalist investors you know, start to look at this space again, um, especially because they've probably been on the sidelines for a while with the volatility yeah. that we've seen over the last couple of years. So um, I think that's leading to you know more interest and more conversation around energy investing in general.
1: So there is a lot happening uh, in your company. Alarion is really great about setting these index for companies to look at or, or, or helping companies look at the future risk and investments. But with all that's going on with the Biden administration reaching out to countries like Saudi Arabia and Venezuela, begging them to produce uh, more oil on the market because of the loss that's happening uh, with Russian oil, uh, is it? where do you see us going in that? Do you see U.S. shell producers stepping up to the plate and with the price being, it's fluctuating wildly, but are U.S. shell producers, we're starting to see activity, they're getting involved, are they going to be able to Produce anything of significance, or is it going to be possibly other countries like, especially Venezuela? How likely is that, and does it change anything in y'all's opinion?
3: Yeah, it's it's an interesting situation when you're looking at you know reevaluating sanctions with Iran and um, you know looking at supplying from Venezuela to try and fill this void. Um, I think you know for U.S. shale producers. Um, there's still, I think, a a pretty significant focus on capital discipline and investors not wanting to see significant growth in this environment. And, you know, maybe that could change a little bit um, if there is, you know, um, more of a focus on, you know, producing almost out of kind of patriotic duty, if you will, or, you know, better visibility to, um, you know, what prices may look like, but we've just seen so much volatility in such a short amount of time that it doesn't really give producers a chance to really change their plans from what they had laid out, you know, in the fall or um, late last year when prices were, you know, 70, 80 dollars per barrel. Um, so I think we're still you're kind of waiting to see how shale is going to respond and if they feel like, you know, they can grow production and not be punished by investors. Correct. Um, the other issue is that you know growing production is is not necessarily going to be easy. Um, we've got global supply chain issues. We've got labor constraints, shortages with sand for fracking. You know a number of issues. So it's not as easy as just you know turning a tap. Um, so even if we do see U.S. producers start to respond, it's going to take you know months. Um, so there's no kind of quick hit solution here um, from a U.S. production standpoint. And again, I think a lot just depends on how companies are are talking to their investors, what their investors are wanting to see, Um, and the volatility that we've seen doesn't help in terms of making those kind of plans to bring on more production. Well, Stacey, Uh, certainly private companies will probably be a little more responsive, and that's you know what we've seen already.
1: Perfect, Stacey. We're going to take a quick break, but I do want to come back to this topic. You're listening to in the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back.
0: SR Trident is a proud sponsor of State of Energy 2022 is coming to the Houston Club in downtown Houston on Thursday, April 21st, starting at 1130 a.m. The keynote speaker will be the chairman of the Texas Railroad Commission, Wayne Christian, and will feature moderator Sean Strawbridge, CEO of the Port of Corpus Christi, along with panelists Mike Howard, CEO of Howard Energy Partners, Phil Anderson, Senior VP of Liquid Pipelines Enbridge, and Bruce Fullen, Vice President of Argus Media. For tickets for the State of Energy Luncheon in Houston on April 21st, go to shalemag.ticketleap.com backslash stateofenergy. That's shalemag.ticketleap.com backslash stateofenergy. Sponsored in part by SR Trident.
1: And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Stacy Morris, the Director of Research at Allerian. Stacy, you know, we talked about how will U.S. producers be able to step up to the plate, if at all, with all of the constraints and considerations that they have to deal with their investors. And are they aligning with producing more or staying the course, which is being careful with uh, being disciplined on capital spending projects for the future? Um, we didn't cover... Venezuela, but I don't necessarily think that there's a lot to discuss there because I don't think that's going to happen. But my question, though, is on the U.S. shell producers, and you talked about the investors of like maybe they'll have some patriotic need to say we need to produce because the American people are hurting at the pump and gas prices and we need to try to do our share. Do you see any of that? And then I know David wants to ask you some questions on the supply chain issue.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's still a a bit of a stretch, you know, to get um, companies to produce from that kind of a motivation, um, especially if their shareholders are against it. Um, I mean, it could be, you know, positive from a PR perspective, and and certainly PR has been kind of a a troublesome area for oil and gas companies um, over the years. Um, But again, like, I mentioned it, but I still think it, it would be a stretch to necessarily get these companies to respond out of you know, a sense of duty to the American consumer um, because you know, we've seen in the past where companies ramp production like they did in 2018 when oil you know was above $80 per barrel briefly and at that point U.S. production was growing 2 million barrels per day. Um, And companies really overshot and, you know, prices went back down and there were demand, you know, impacts as well back then. But, you know, I think, you know, shale producers are going to be cautious to do anything from a production standpoint and ramp more aggressively than, you know, the 5% or so that a lot of them have talked about um, because their investors don't want it and because it may come back to bite them. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's, that's kind of the situation that we're in.
2: Well, how does that? So, you know, last week, uh, for the first time, uh, after spending a year uh, asking for more oil from basically every other producing nation other than the United States, Secretary Granholm at the Sierra Week conference said she wanted more oil production from the domestic industry, which, you know, I think was a welcome recognition that our industry actually exists, which is nice to know. I'm glad the uh, administration Understands that, but with with this investor pressure and and you know with the supply chain issues and and with as you mentioned earlier, oil prices have fallen twenty five dollars a barrel just in the last week. Um, you know how how does the industry respond to Secretary Granholm's request? Now, I, I it's hard for me to see you know how uh, how they these companies can really justify that.
3: Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I think it's a a tough predicament um, because, yes, you know, front month prices right now on, you know, March 16th are at $97 a barrel. But if you look out the curve to January 2023, you know, prices at $83 a barrel. So, you know, there is, I guess, the potential to hedge a price that's not bad, especially given where we were, you know, a year or two ago. But um, I don't know that, you know, investors want to see companies necessarily hedge and then grow production and, you know, grow at that $80 type payoff. So I think it's a really tough environment. And while it's nice that, you know, there was this acknowledgement of of the industry and turning to the industry. um, I think a lot of um, conversations would have to be had to facilitate, you know, some kind of producer response um, based on, you know, government requests. Um, It's just, seems like a large bill to to fill right
2: now what about the midstream i know your company really focuses a lot on the midstream too and they're they're having supply chain issues of their own right and and so and plus all the difficulties getting for to approve new pipelines interstate pipelines so can can the midstream industry handle you know it's let's say there is a big ramp up in production over the next 12 months is the midstream business prepared to handle all of that right now, do you think?
3: Yeah, I think a lot depends on where you are. I mean, certainly from a Permian perspective, there's, you know, extra capacity um, for oil pipelines coming out of the Permian. And so to the extent that we see Permian volumes grow, you know, we can have midstream companies have some operating leverage to that because they already have pipes that may not be, you know, fully utilized right now. So yeah. I think there is some flexibility somewhere like that. Um, You know, Bakken may have other issues and and issues with, you know, natural gas as well, gathering, and then, you know, broader takeaway from the basin. Um, So it really kind of depends, where you are. Um, And with production, obviously, being down from where it was pre-pandemic, there is probably some, you know, latent potential with some of these pipes and and capacity that could be filled up that, you know, is maybe not filled up today. Um, But it's really, you know, specific to the particular basin that you're looking at.
1: Very yeah. good. Well, Stacy, David, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to In the Will Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. We're back. You're listening to in the Wall Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Stacy Morris, the director of research for Alarion. Stacy, uh, David asked you uh, before the break about the midstream and where they're at. But staying on that topic, the midstream business, the on—is there an ongoing crisis um, impacting the terms of investors? a sediment in that area pertaining to the midstream companies? Is there any leeway there or uh, what is your sense for the midstream sector? How are they doing?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think like energy broadly, the midstream space has seen a lot more interest lately. Um, and, you know, we've certainly seen that. Um You know, the nice thing about midstream relative to other energy sectors is the yield um, that these companies pay. You know, midstream companies are generating stable cash flows from fee based businesses. Um, So, with those stable cash flows, they've historically paid out generous dividends, both corporations and master limited partnerships. And we continue to see that be a major theme in this space. And, you know, additional examples of dividend growth from this space broadly after, you know, a number of companies. Uh, We're in positions where they reduced their payouts, uh, you know, particularly back in 2020. So I've seen a lot of positive momentum in this space from a dividend perspective, and I think that's helped bring some retail investors back to this space, which is beneficial. Um, Like the rest of Energy, you know, midstream is very focused on free cash flow generation. Um, This space is also very focused on buybacks. If you look at our, you know, Larian MLP infrastructure index, you know, 70% 70% of the index by weighting has the buyback authorization in place. Um, and this is a space where, you know, years ago, these companies were issuing a lot of equity and issuing shares, yeah. you know, to build out um, you know, these massive you know, pipeline projects that we saw in the past to facilitate you know, significant growth in US oil production and natural gas production, too. Um, so from a midstream perspective, you know, those same themes of free cash flow are in focus buybacks, you know, returning capital to shareholders through dividends. Um, and I think that, you know, helps make the midstream space particularly interesting for investors, um, especially those investors that are looking for income.
2: So I, I actually worked for a couple of big MLP companies in my career, El Paso corporation and, uh, Lynn energy, uh, an EMP MLP company that uh, ended up in financial trouble. Not, not because of that structure, but, I, but I just wonder, um, you know, talk about a little bit of how that uh, business model has kind of evolved over the last twelve to fifteen years, because it's it, it's had a real change, hasn't it?
3: It really has. Um, if you know, your listeners are familiar with the MLPs of the past, um, there's been a huge change in the space over the last you know five ten years. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, from you know 2010 up to you know 2014, even even more recently. Um, The Midstream space was spending billions and billions of dollars to build pipelines, export facilities, um, processing facilities for natural gas and natural gas liquids, um, and just investing heavily in the infrastructure that was needed to facilitate the tremendous growth that we saw in U.S. energy production. Um, And as part of that, MLPs in particular um, were somewhat notorious for issuing equity and doing secondary offerings. Um, because they needed all this capital for the projects they were doing. Now, midstream capital spending probably peaked in 2018 or 2019. Um, it was coming down in 2020 already um, as U.S. production growth was starting to moderate. And then, of course, we had the pandemic, uh, and capital budgets came down even further. Projects that had been discussed, you know, were tabled, um, and so. All of that has kind of really led to this situation where the midstream space can generate significant free cash flow and be in a position to repurchase equity instead of issuing equity. Um, You know, companies aren't issuing equity like they were in the past. They're self-funding their capital spending. Capital spending budgets are much smaller. So, you know, these companies are reaping the cash flows from projects that they completed in the years past. And then they're spending a lot less money. And so that's the perfect recipe for free cash flow generation. Um, and again, with that free cash flow, we're seeing dividend increases, debt reduction, and you know, buybacks um, kind of across the space. So it's a very different space than it was in the past. Um, you know, Much better from a corporate governance perspective, um, much better from a, you know, Returning capital to shareholders through buybacks, perspective—you're not going to be, you know, diluted on an equity offering; those sorts of things. So, um, the space has definitely changed a lot over the last you know, five to ten years.
2: Yeah, very good, uh, Stacey. We we saw some senators last week uh, introduce a bill that would create a new uh, windfall profits tax on the oil business, and I, I just am curious: does your firm believe? Uh, do you see oil companies, particularly independent producers? You know who were hit real hard by the, the first windfall profit tax do you see these companies actually making windfall profits right now because i'm not really seeing it i don't think
3: yeah i mean i think it goes back to the volatility in oil prices right, um, right. we saw you know maybe 120 115 briefly um but then you know prices mm. fell back down and, and now we're sitting currently under 100 dollars per barrel um so you know, will profits be higher than they were um in previous quarters or recent quarters? Yes, that's, that's probably the case. Um, is it a windfall? You know, I I think that's Does it make a, up a for what tough. they
2: lost in 2020 and 2021? I think that's my question, you know.
3: <laughs> I just right. wonder about that. I don't think it's necessarily a windfall as much as it is maybe like a catch up from <laughs> you know, recovering okay. the money that was lost in, in 2020. Um and you know, using maybe extra cash to return capital to shareholders, just, you know, further repair balance sheets, those sorts of things. So, yes, they'll probably make more money than they have in recent quarters, but I don't know that it's necessarily a windfall. And, um, you know, a windfall tax kind of makes you scratch your head um, when you think about what this industry has been through, particularly in 2020. Yeah.
1: I couldn't agree with you more, and it's amazing to see how quickly Congress forgets where we have been in this industry and uh yeah this kind of seems as bill i'll say it very silly um (coughs) we're gonna take a quick break when we get back we have covered upstream uh, and midstream and i want to switch gears and i want to get into the downstream part too because that's also another part of this equation we do have to take a quick break you're listening to in the world patch radio show we'll be right back
0: sr trident is a veteran owned and operated industrial construction company Established in 2012 by co-founders Steven Snyder and Ryan Berthold, SR Trident has positioned itself as an expert in the industrial construction sector. With mounting business expansions, they've assembled a team of skilled, experienced, and able individuals who are dedicated to meeting client needs as they evolve. SR Trident's safety record is impeccable as they've won a number of awards, including the ABC National Safety Excellence Award in 2020. With exceptional leadership and experience driving their gains, SR Trident can tackle any project and are ready to let their talent be the driving force in the energy industry. Call today. 361-776-2662 or visit online at srtrident.com to request a bid proposal today.
4: The Texas Alliance of Energy Producers has a rich and commanding history of fighting for the independent oil and gas industry. The Texas Alliance became a statewide organization in 2000 with the merger of two of the oldest oil and gas associations in the nation, the North Texas Oil and Gas Association and the West Central Texas Oil and Gas Association. Today, with more than 2,600 members, the Texas Texas Alliance is the largest statewide association in the country serving independent energy producers and associated industries. Through our efforts in Washington, D.C. and Austin, the Texas Alliance is focused on a better business climate for you. The Texas Alliance has a staff consisting of highly experienced senior staff and supporting consultants serving our membership. Offices are located in Austin and Wichita Falls. Become a member today by visiting TexasAlliance.org or email us TexasAlliance at TexasAlliance.org.
1: we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Stacey Morris, Director of Research for Alarion. Stacy, thank you for helping us understand the index investment part of what operators, midstream and even downstream companies deal with when we're, we're dealing with a lot of different situations or they are dealing with a lot of different situations from price, uh, regulation, um, and just supply chain issues. We've, we've talked about that. But I do want to move into one part we haven't covered, which is the downstream part of the oil and gas sector here. Now, Europe um, is in the midst of an energy crisis before Putin had chosen to go uh, and invade Ukraine. Can you tell us a little bit about the crisis uh, now there with Russia being there? And is the U.S. LNG, what part are we playing in helping Europe, if any? Or where do you see us going in helping this situation in
3: Europe, sure. So, you know, clearly, I think the, one of the lessons learned is that you know Europe needs to diversify its energy supplies and improve its energy security. Um, whether that's through oil and natural gas or also you know through renewables, I think you know it's really a situation where you kind of need need everything that you can get. Um, in the short term, you know, there may be some flexibility to send spot cargos to Europe of LNG. Um, But, you know, there's also issues on the receiving end, you know, Germany has talked about lately that they're going to need to build two new LNG importing terminals. Um, So there's infrastructure constraints there in terms of, you know, import capabilities as well. And I think longer term, you know, the outlook for U.S. LNG is certainly improved, um, just over the last couple of weeks, and we've seen that reflected in you know, the equity prices of companies that focus on LNG exports, um, even companies that are still developing projects have seen you know, a nice uptick in their share prices um, in anticipation of kind of this changed paradigm for US LNG and Europe's need for US LNG. So I think over you know, the intermediate and long-term, we'll probably see you know, more progress with projects that were still under development. Um, you know, more long-term agreements from European buyers. Um, And then, you know, on the European side, um, probably more focused on building out that infrastructure to better facilitate those LNG imports.
2: Yeah, so several things uh, on this topic. I, You know, first of all, when, when Germany talks about building these two new import facilities, they're talking about having those things up and running by 20, what, the end of 2023, I think, which in America, these things take, Five years from you know start of construction to first cargoes, or they can take that long. Uh, you know, some have gone more quickly than that. But uh, you know, it just seems to me that's a little unrealistic. And then then we had the IEA last week uh, issue a report in which they talked about the potential for Europe to completely replace Russian natural gas by next winter, a, and with US LNG playing a very big role in that. And then. We had the CEO of, of an independent producer at CuraWeek saying that US LNG could easily displace Russian natural gas. And I, I all of this is very confusing to me because it's really hard for me to see how we can really make any big impact before next winter uh, for Europe. And, and I just wonder what how investors look at all that, right? And, and the, the folks you deal with in, in the space your company's in.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Uh, It's not going to be easy. Um, And timelines, I think, are are especially, um, you know, I don't want to say questionable, but timelines are, you know, especially in focus um, in this kind of environment. Because to your point, you know, we've got global supply chain issues, we've got labor shortages, you know, all these other issues that may... It's all the stuff make, that's
2: impacting the U.S. industry, right? And,
3: right, and it, it's affecting so many mm-hmm. things that certainly would probably also have an impact on trying to build an LNG terminal in, in Germany. So, you know, I think it, it's definitely, um, you know, something that is you know, very interesting and compelling on paper, but there's a big, you know, step to be taken from what's on paper versus, you know, what is, what can be done... Realistically, um, and of course, you know, European natural gas. There's not, you know, strategic reserves like we have for oil. So that makes you know the situation more difficult. Um, you've already got you know a bit of a storage deficit there, or you know, we have yeah. that coming into this winter. So we right. need to refill you know pretty significantly ahead of next winter. Um, so I- I'm with you in that. I think um, it's it's going to be a challenge and. It's, it's not a, always easy to translate things from plans on paper to, you know, actual energy supplies and actual energy security.
1: Well, Stacey and, and David, I have a question about. Do you think that this is more just discussion and talking to try to uh, quail fears that are occurring um, in that area versus that maybe those uh, timelines are not realistic? At, but one nice thing that might be coming out of this is that maybe through what happened in Russia invading Ukraine and the lack of wind and other things that just came into play, that maybe the Europeans are waking up to the insanity that they were in of doubling down and tripling down on uh, renewables that aren't quite so reliable as of yet, not picking on them, I'm just saying they're not, I don't think they're ready yet for the main stage and to get rid of oil and gas. Either one of you guys want to comment on that, David, I'm sure you probably do have a comment on that, but
3: it just kind of I'll let Stacey
1: have first (laughs) crack.
3: Oh, well, thank you, David. Um, yes, I mean, I think, you know, it provides an example of how difficult the energy transition is going to be. Correct. It's something that I've said repeatedly to investors is that the energy transition is going to take a lot longer than people think, and it's going to be a lot more difficult. Than and it's a think. totally wild west, uncharted yes. territory. And so I think we've, you know, seen that kind of play out here, um, and, you know, there are still intermittency issues with and solar um, and battery storage isn't necessarily where it needs to be to kind of under, overcome those issues. So, you know, I think we've still got kind of a, a long slug here. Um, and Europe is probably, you know, um, you're really realizing that, uh, you know, more severely given the, the current crisis that we're in. Um, yeah. But I want to leave time for David because I know he probably has some thoughts too.
0: Well, I actually,
2: you know what, you you, you uh, just said exactly what we've been writing about at Shell Magazine and trying to warn people. You know, and we and we talk to to people in the industry all the time, and it's exactly what I've been telling them. Is that look, nothing nothing is about this is going to be simple and easy and fast. It's going to be stops and starts, and you know, you
1: know and major
2: and crash and burn major crises in you know in, not just in Europe in the United States, but all over the world. And you know, you just can't. It doesn't really matter what these these global elites decide at these annual conferences uh, on our behalf, it, it's, it's all going to come down to supply and demand. And, and I, I, just last thing I'd, I'd like to ask you about, Stacy. I mean, uh, does your firm, I, I think you said your firm also deals in the renewable space. What are you seeing there in terms of the, 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 the massive ramp up in prices of these critical minerals that renewables and electric vehicles need?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, a, a challenged area as well. And, you have Russia and Ukraine as suppliers of some of those minerals, you know, is, a, is an added complication as well. Um, so that's something that, you know, we've highlighted in the past in our research as another kind of example of, uh, you know, potential obstacle with the energy transition is just securing those metals that you need for things like electrical vehicle batteries and right. um, the solar panels and, and other things that require these kind of rare earth minerals or, you know, small production minerals, things like cobalt and anything, other things that are just difficult um, to maybe get in this environment. So I think that is a potential added obstacle here.
1: Very good. Well, Stacy, thank you so much for coming uh, on the show, In the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we look forward to having you back. Stay in touch with us and let us know if you guys are producing some great research we would like to have you come back on and discuss it with us. Thank you for being a guest on the Oil Patch Radio Show.
3: Thanks so much, Kim. appreciate you having
4: me. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bilotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In The Oil Patch.